Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metz, here along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. And today we've got a special guest joining us. It's the one and only Chris Watkins. Chris, how's it going, man? Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm doing good, man. Uh, yeah, you know, winter, winter is afoot, uh, so just getting ready to bunker down, um, get my igloo building skills, you know, back up to par. Um, and uh, yeah, excited about excited about the cold weather for the next like seven months uh, here in Chicago. I know we uh, in in uh, Toronto, well, not Toronto, but uh, I'll say Toronto area for people listening. Uh, I've been getting snow in the past week or so, and it's already been a fun adjustment to make. So I, I definitely feel that. Um, uh, we were talking beforehand. We thought it would be great to have you on because, you know, um, if anyone doesn't know, you're an awesome follow on Twitter. And, you know, you have a, whole, a lot of different uh, takes on Twitter about uh, hockey in general. I think that, uh, as Chase said pretty well before the podcast, is better for a back and forth kind of <laughs> format than uh, maybe 140 characters or whatever. Uh, Chase, do you want to lead off with anything here? All right. So, yeah, this is a big one. I You, you tweet about this one a lot. Uh, sure. And I've always wanted to kind of get the entirety of the thought process behind it. Tell me your thoughts about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I <laughs> believe you think uh, forwards could play defense generally at the NHL level. Uh, some, yeah, that some of it. Yeah. So some <laughs> of them at least. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Clarify, it's not necessarily, I think that forwards can play defense per se, or yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of them can, um, or I, I think a lot of them have the skill set. or the, probably the better way to say it is what we generally consider a top defenseman has a lot more overlap yeah. with like a sort of very good forward than people sort of think. So when you always look at the Norris trophy, you know, the top three vote getters are the guys who get the most points. Uh, you know, we always consider the key play drivers as the guys who can pass and shoot and bring the puck up the ice um, and then happen to defend in their uh, own zone when needed. Um, and so from that perspective, it's like, well, that's generally what, especially of sensors, that's like what you expect them to do anyway. So for the, the real the real crust of the argument, the sort of, you know, 10 second elevator pitch is like, particularly for a third pair defenseman, if, you know, where teams are forcing in a right shot D just because they need someone in that position, you're probably more likely to find a better player at the forward position for that role than an actual third-pairing defenseman. So the Victor Hedmans of the world, the Charlie McAvoy's, the Adam Foxes, like, they should definitely stay, <laughs> stay defensemen. They should be your number one defenseman. Those players are immensely valuable. It's the guys that are further down the lineup that are probably not that good to begin with that can be replaced with a forward who can't find playing time. So that's the gist of the argument. Uh, I can go. We can go into more detail as to sort of what data and uh, statistics support that, but that's generally what I've been trying to to validate. I'd love to hear uh, statistics supporting it because uh, I'm reasonably well versed with NHL statistics, but I have no idea what statistics you would use to support that. Yeah, there, uh, uh, so technically there are none. So like uh, Matt Cain, who's now with the Devils, uh, I mean Tyler Dello. Um, looked at this a few years back, and I think he had found like less than like 20 minutes of like five on five time with four forwards. Um, and generally, that only happened when a team was finishing up on the power play, and they you know they didn't get the forward off um, yeah. to replace with the defenseman. So like the amount of actual real life data to go off of is non-existent. Um, so when I started looking at this a few years ago, I was like, well, okay, I can't use actual information or on ice uh, estimates to do that um but what i did was i did a bunch of research into other um so baseball has a bunch of stuff about positional adjustments so a common uh a common transition for players as they get older is to go from like shortstop to third base or to go from the infield to the outfield you know as they slow down they get bigger all this stuff so that's a common adjustment um, so there's data on how to calculate that and whether or not a player will be a good fit there. So a perfect example is Alex Rodriguez going to the Yankees. Well, Derek Jeter's already playing shortstop, so now he's playing third base. You know, most people will argue that Rodriguez was a superior shortstop, but uh, neither here nor there. But you can sort of find a data-driven approach to figure out how successful that is. Um, also in the NBA, that's something that happens as well. As people get older, you know, get heavier, get a little bit stronger, they go out the positional spectrum. So a player might start out as a shooting guard and become a small forward or a power forward becomes a center um, as they get older. Um, so there was some data on that. What 
the quick way I did it for the NHL was, as we said, offensive defensemen are generally considered like the peak of the position in the NHL. So basically, if you look at someone who generally puts up a ton of points, Brent Burns would obviously be a clear example because he used to be a forward. But someone like Dougie Hamilton or, uh, you know, Tony D'Angelo, whoever, you know, what if you looked at their statistics from the lens of them actually playing forward and then vice versa? You know, what if you took a very good defensive uh, center, Joel Erickson Eck, and sort of adjust their statistics to see what would happen if they play on the blue line? Um, there's a lot more complexity to it, but basically that's what I did. So um, if you take that approach across all the players in the NHL, you can look and say, hey, this player who like uh, Tyson Berry, who basically no one really considers a defensive defenseman anyway. Let's see yeah. if we consider him a forward. OK, we'll just label him as a forward. So instead of having, you know, McDavid, Ryan Nugent Hawkins and uh, Kyler Yamamoto on the ice as the three forwards, also add Tyson Berry as the fourth one and then. Basically, you can use that to say, okay, this is a lineup with four forwards, just kind of Tyson Berry as a fourth one. How well does it perform compared to a lineup with three defensemen, uh, three forwards and two defensemen, uh, and so on and so forth? So just do that with every lineup in the league, see how well it performs, and, and then adjust from there. And so when I ran the, those numbers, what I found was people's expectation was, oh, yeah, intuitively you think, oh, well, they'd be worse on defense. You know, they, get, they bleed shots and it sort of cancel out. And that was like almost never the case. What generally happened was those four forward lineups basically had the same shots against and, and Corsi four against, but the Corsi, uh, their Corsi four was significantly higher. Uh, as you add more offensive talent on the ice, it was significantly higher. And so when you take that and then also include the fact that you have a goalie to sort of like, if all hell breaks loose and like you're just like giving up shots left and right, you still have a goalie like still to like protect you and like at least keep it level. Uh, and so basically you almost have like a guaranteed power play like <laughs> at all times. Uh, and so it's just interesting that even the resistance to go to four forwards on the power play, that was just a recent adjustment. And then people were like, oh yeah, no, this is industry standard. And I was like, so you don't think there's a possibility that that may also be the case at five on five, that maybe we're just sort of missing the ball on something there. So I mean, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting back and forth, um, but we were able to like do an actual model that predicted the likelihood of it or the effect of doing that. Um, and I think in the most conservative estimate, it was like an additional 10 to 15 wins per season for a given team, uh, particularly if you're a really bad team with a really bad second and third pairing defenseman. Um, it's almost like you just have to do it. Like you you would like guarantee a spot in the playoffs uh, for the, a team like the Sabres or the Coyotes. Um, if they just switch to that approach um, for a team like Tampa Bay, who already has a bunch of good defensemen, probably not. But that's not who, a team that would be in a position to try out radical things like that anyway, because they're already successful. So that's uh, that's basically what I've been advocating for for a very long time. We'll see if a team is bad enough to do it. Um, I'm, I'm sending letters to Kyle Davidson with the Blackhawks, uh, seeing if he'll take me up on my offer. Um, but, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Is someone who watches Josh Brown, Nikita Zaitsev, and Michael Delzato play a combined fifty-something yeah. minutes a night? I would fucking love to see a fourth word be on the ice for any of those minutes. So uh, I am absolutely behind it. Uh, the, the one thing it kind of reminds me of, and they're not the same, but um, I wonder, you know, what your thoughts on are uh, with positionalist hockey because yeah. it, it kind of reminds me of the same idea where it's like total hockey. Yeah, like we're so stuck on this. You need two forwards, three defensemen, first man back, all this stuff. And obviously there's got to be some structure to your game. If you're just completely out there playing randomly with no one knowing what each other are doing, it's not going to be successful. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, if the game would ever get to a point where, you know, we don't even think of positions quite as much, you know, where it's just it's natural for you know, had to have four forwards or consider someone like Tyson Berry, who, let's face it, is basically a fourth forward half the time. To right. Just consider them naturally jumping up in the rush as not a defenseman jumping up in the rush, just another player being where he should be. Right. And, and I think that's the most important part, which is like, you know, there's some uh, validity to try trying to balance out your, your lineup and, and optimizing your, your lines. But you know, the positionless hockey thing, you know, I've, I've gotten back and forth with people on, on like the actual responsibilities of positions. And I've just asked a lot of people outright, like if you didn't know who took the face off, like who would you consider the uh, the center on the scene? Like or the center in this lineup? Like you ask a bunch of 
you know, the stats people on how do you consider someone a center on the lineup or, you know, understand their defensive responsibilities. A lot of them, you know, just have a big question mark emoji face. <laughs> um, so when it comes to positionless hockey, I think it, to me, it starts with just putting your best five players on the ice. Now, maybe your best five players, like from a pure talent level, may not be your best five person lineup. But generally, there's probably a lot of overlap between those two. But oftentimes, uh, as we said, you know, Senators being a perfect example, there's just too many instances of a Nikita Zaitsev just sort of being guaranteed time because they play a position or, you know, six foot six lumbering guy that can't get the puck out of his own zone. I'm not saying any names, but, you know, can't get uh, the puck out of his own zone, just sort of being guaranteed 17 minutes a night for whatever reason. Whereas if you replace that with a much more dynamic forward. So in, in Chicago, we have Dylan Strong, who could never get into the lineup, despite being relatively productive. But we have a bunch of really bad defensemen playing instead of him. It's like, mm, can we like flip that a little bit? Um, I think once you sort of cross that threshold and get it over that barrier, then you can go to positionless hockey, where it's like five, you know, five guys all capable of bringing the puck up, you know, capable of getting down into the zone, sort of setting up behind the net and just sort of switching, which you see a lot of on the power play. If you could sort of get that um, that lineup flexibility of people that are just good enough to do those things and play those different roles, then, yeah, I would definitely see – I would definitely expect a team that can do it first um, to really get an advantage. The problem that you run into with that is over time that's going to erode if it's successful because those players that were undervalued uh, in, in that capacity um, become more expensive to get. But a team that really jumps on it and is aggressive in doing it, and tries to accumulate all those players first. Um, so obviously, like Braden Point being the example for Tampa Bay, where it's like, hey, undersized guy that put up a whole bunch of points in junior, but people passed on them because they're five, seven, and 180 pounds dripping wet. Like, yeah, let's go out and get them. And now everybody wants to get their own Cole Caulfield or, you know, Alex Brinkett and stuff like that. Um, but the teams that we're able to do it first are able to take advantage. So I think getting a whole bunch of those players at once, getting a critical mass and then doing it, like, I think that team will be like really, really hard to stop. It makes an intuitive sense, too, because, like, it sounds really, like, sensational or whatever about forwards playing defense, but just at the most, like, fundamental level, the most important thing I think a defenseman can do in today's day and age is just move it, move the puck, right? right. Like, get the puck on the forward yes. sticks, effectively exit the zone. Uh, there's no reason, I guess, a playmaking center and couldn't learn to do that very quickly. They might already be better at it than a lot of defense. Actually, I can pretty much guarantee you a good playmaking center would be better at exiting the zone than Nikita Zaitz ever, whatever, right. like today. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the most – and actually, that's what the data says. Like the most um, – the biggest predictor of like success for a given defensive pairing is their ability – is actually who is the worst person uh, – what is the ability of the worst defender to actually like move the puck out their zone? Um, because – you know, I made that I made the case that there's no such thing as defense in hockey. It's just sort of like it's, it's having the puck and getting it, getting it back as quickly as possible. And yeah. to me, like even if I'm giving up a couple shots, as I said, there's a goalie to sort of protect. You know, even if you give up a breakaway every single time. Let's say you reduce the total amount of shots you you give up by like 20 percent, but then you replace that with an extra five breakaways. Like you have a goalie that's going to stop. You know, one out of those five or something, or four out of those five, uh, and, and maybe it cancels out. But if you can get players that can co consistently get the puck out, keep it in their zone and sort of own the neutral zone, then you really you're a really difficult team to stop. I, I think a team like Carolina is a really good embodiment of it, which is I don't think they get enough credit for how much they like dominate the neutral zone, which is like, you know, obviously they always have great like, you know, coursing numbers and all of that. But like watching them play is a no go in the neutral zone and they're always able to get like a clean entry as much as possible, either through like a very like hard forecheck or just having guys that are fast and skilled enough to get the puck out. And so even when they went from Dougie Hamilton to Tony D'Angelo, which is a significant downgrade in terms of civic engagement and, and <laughs> overall uh, talent level, uh, you know, D'Angelo is still like a player that's capable of doing it. And it fits within that mold of, you know, mobile defensemen that can get the puck out and support our forwards uh, in terms of letting them do what they do best. So, so yeah, I think it's definitely something teams should consider. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. At least to try, like, if you're the Sens or something like yes. that. <laughs> I, I would say 100% for the Sens because 
even like to me, this offseason further validated. Like to me, there's no reason to do it after this offseason with the crazy numbers that defensemen were getting. Uh, yeah. uh, there's no world where maybe Steph Jones, which you know, don't get me started on that. I, I'm still <laughs> I'm still having PSD, uh, P, PTSD uh, over that trade and contract. Uh, but a guy like Darnell Nurse, like yes, sure, had a great season last year. You know, the Oilers are doing well this year, so you know they're probably not crying too much about it, but. You know, the fact that a player like that can go for 9.25 um, it is pretty – I would be concerned if I was a team like the Senators where every dollar counts and I'm working $20 million under like the salary cap every year versus, you know, some random uh, forward or something like that, which, you know, may or may not pan out. But if that person has some skill set or something like that, you know, Jimmy VC as an example, just a replacement level forward, maybe consider putting him on the blue line and seeing if – you know, the skill set that people thought was going to translate as a forward, and uh, it didn't really pan out. Maybe that works. Um, I think the, probably the best example uh, or the best use case is actually for, like, guys who, who are older centers that used to be, like, stars. Uh, uh, Ryan Getzlaff, for example. Like, their skating is probably better than the average defenseman. They obviously have been around the game long enough to know defensive responsibilities. And then having their passing and playmaking at the defenseman position just unlocks a lot more for the team overall. And then their skating is not as big of a concern uh, at that level as it would be as a center because they're expected to generate the offense like single-handedly as a center versus as a defenseman that can be, play a more support role. I think that better like validates their skill set than trying to force the puck in their hands at all times. Gaston's a good one for that. I was thinking, too, of like Thornton like yeah, exactly. a couple of years ago. Just be big enough to not get killed in transition coming against you, and then the puck moving skills just get the right. puck up the ice. What were you saying, Alex? Sorry, I was off. just going to... No worries. I was just going to say, like, I think a big part of this, too, is wrapping your head around, like, what defense actually is. And, you know, it, it's hard to quantify, but uh, you guys said it great earlier, where it's not what still, I think, honestly, too many mainstream media, or just even fans, I think, cling on to of, like, when you say defense, people think of you need these big lumbering guys to go hit and and lay the body and quote unquote make it hard every shift or whatever. That's not what defense is. Defense is when you don't have the puck getting it back as quick as you possibly can. So, you know, the puck can't end up in the back of your net. And, you know, so when breaking the puck out is the most important trait, I would argue probably the second most is just awareness. And you don't need to be massive to, you know, just know where people are on the ice. And and that's one thing I've really picked up uh um, you know, watching some of these disastrous Sens games this year um, are so many times you have both defensemen and honestly a centerman just staring at the dude with the puck when three guys walk in right behind him or wide open on the far side. You don't need a defense, defensive defenseman, quote unquote, to to realize, hey, if two of my teammates are already staring at the dude with the puck, where is the open guy on the ice? Because it's five on five. That means someone's open anywhere. And that's the thing I think that, you know, you got to wrap your head around too, is for this to work. And sorry, I, I shouldn't say for this to work because it would work. You just have to remember that, you know, you need guys who are going to be aware out there. And I think that's a good uh, trait to have because any guy who's skilled offensively is going to be aware enough to try and get themselves open in an offensive zone. It's just trying to do the opposite of that in a defensive zone. Right. And, and, and... Uh, this is a really good podcast I listened to uh, about the NBA, and they talk about this a lot, which, it, particularly when the starters, you know, when LeBron is sitting on the bench, you know, in this, and, and the backups come in, and he said, what is the theory of this lineup? Like, okay, you know, this lineup is going to be in for five minutes. The other team is going to score 10 points uh, on average. So either you keep them down to six points, so you put in a really good defensive lineup, and, you know, they have a star player, uh, Steph Curry's on the other side, so you need someone that can guard him. And he was going to score four points in an average uh, five-minute span. You need someone that can take that four points to two. Okay, great. So the theory of the lineup is we're, we're going to play them even. We're not going to score ourselves. We're going to keep them from scoring the normal way they do it. Okay, that makes sense. Or the other way around, which is like, okay, we're going to have, you know, this other guy come in, you know, Russell Westbrook, and – we're going to have four shooters around him and we're just going to outscore them. So they're going to score 10 and we're going to score 13 and we'll come out ahead in that five minute segment. And so often when it comes to in a, uh, NHL lineups, I'm like, what is the strategy behind this? You're putting out a fourth line, you know, against a first line for what reason? Cause they're not going to stop anybody. So you're just basically giving up a, like a free shift to, you know, the other team's best players uh, for no reason. And then even if they are able to stop them and, and get the puck back, they can't get it out of their zone. So now you're just cycling back. And they're getting hemmed in. So 
when I looked at this data a few years ago, what I saw was that like the best players in the league, the Conor McDavid, the Sidney Crosby's in the world, uh, were doing most of their damage, not against the first lines and all that stuff, like not strength on strength and just being their first line being better than your first line. They basically played all the other first lines even and just crushed all the like the third and fourth lines. And so in that situation, it's like, ah, like, what what were we thinking out there? Like this team, this lineup isn't going to score. It's not going to get the puck out. It's not going to win a face off. Like I, I don't understand like what the philosophy is around this particular thing. But oftentimes I feel like coaches just like are are sticking to a set rotation. And it's like, all right, well, you know, it's the third line's you know t- time to go out and get you know their teeth kicked in <laughs> in the offensive zone and, and then you know swap out. And so uh, I th- my hope is with this philosophy, teams would just have a better understanding of roster construction. Like I think we can go into this as well. Like I don't think the concept of lines to me honestly makes a lot of sense. Uh, I understand that's how it's been done, but if you just see when coaches are struggling or teams are struggling, that they switch up the lines anyway just gives me further validation that the concept of lines is based off of like if they're it's survivorship bias if this line is performing really well we'll keep it together if it's not we'll just switch it up and and so therefore teams going with a pretty set first line and then everything else after that is just random and then like whoever just happens to be on fire at the moment is going to be like the second line or the second pp and all that stuff like that so once again, this goes back to like having enough talent and not purposely, you know, being like the Rangers this year and shooting yourself in the foot and getting rid of talent to fit this mold of what a team should be and just trying to stuff as much talent under the salary cap as possible is the way that you sustainably win in this league. And so that's where the sort of defensive, the four fours philosophy comes in, but also like positionless hockey. Like if my team can support six great defensemen, great. But if not, let's not try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, and, and that line construction thing, I think, is a great point of, like, even this year, I think people, when they bring up the – it feels like every year, and obviously, like, when a winner – you know, whoever wins the Stanley Cup, everyone tries to take exactly what they did and be like, how can we replicate this for other teams? And it always blows my mind that the takeaway from the last two Tampa teams has been you need gritty guys who can, you know, score <laughs> one or two goals but play defensively responsible here and there. It's like, no, they just got as much talent as they could on their 12 forwards, and that's why they overwhelmed in the bottom six – as well as the top six. It wasn't because they went and got gritty guys first. It was because they got skilled guys who can do a little bit of everything and they outpower the shitty bottom six guys that every other team has. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Like I said, as a shorthand, like your team should be figuring out everything to do to get 20 war on the lineup, whichever like formulation of war you want to use, you know, uh, whatever the equivalent is or, but figure out how to get 20 war in the lineup. So either it's like your young guy, your young guys break out, you know, you add some, you know, undervalued free agent, you know, uh, players or something like that, or, you know, you instill a defensive system that brings everybody's collective war up, something like that. But you need to be figuring out how to get to that threshold. And then you can work, worry about stylistic differences. Like, okay, we have too many guys that play on the perimeter. We can maybe swap one out, you know, for a tougher, you know, you know, gritty four checker or something like that. But until you get to that point, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, always funny that yeah people are like yeah i need to get you know barkley goudreau because you know he played on a winner he brings a couple experience like okay but like uh i think the guys that had i want to say uh who was it uh kucherov and point and i think it was headman or somebody like that i forgot what the status cited but they had like 67 points in like the last 31 like playoff games yeah. like i would probably go with the guys that are averaging like 1.5 points a game in the playoffs um, and try to get more of those guys first and then worry about the other ones. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. The thing with lines too, is I think like there's, there's room for really good analysis of lines, but there's kind of two problems I always see with it. And the one is that people talk really cookie cutter about it. Like yeah. they're playing NHL and they want to go uh, <laughs> power forward sniper yeah. playmaker, like just kind of bin them and throw that together. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you said, and then the other problem with that too is I'm thinking about like defensemen too. We like if you have a guy who's just really out of place, it harms the other guys miserably. I'm thinking about when the Leafs used to lose playoff series to Boston because right. they had Morgan Riley and Jake Gardner on the one side, and you think, oh, put somebody defenseman defensive on the right side because these guys are offensive on the right. It's like, well, then when you only have one guy who can break the puck out. Everybody knows what's coming. You shut that guy down. You can't do anything, right? So the cookie cutterness kind of makes sense until you realize that other teams can just scheme against that very easily. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, my my critique of the Leafs has been um, that they, the way people have talked about the Leafs is that there's some offensive powerhouse, like, you know, the 1984 Oilers and just putting on like 400 goals a year and need to trade in some of that 400 goals uh, for defense in the playoffs. I'm like, okay. I mean, they've been like a, a top five offense to be sure under Dubas, uh, you know, since Matthews has been there. So great, yep. but not like number one in the league with a bullet like they're, they're good it, it, like really good but not like so elite that you can afford to like trade off talent from that part to support the other uh other side of the uh team and the other part is like in the playoffs they like their offenses draws up every year in the playoffs they can't score ever <laughs> they, they can't score it's been yeah. you know, they they have consistently scored at a goal less than they were in the regular season and so my point has been like they needed to double down on the offense, not not trade it off. Like they they were so worried about fixing their weaknesses that they were like giving up their strength to the point where I don't think it was a strength anymore in the in, in the playoffs. And so, to your point about like having that philosophy and just sort of being able to buy in and having the right players to fit that, it's like okay, you already have great players. Like, can we find cheap support that can allow us to do that even more? You know, so a, a perfect example is. You know, the Golden State Warriors, and I and I go back to this. It's like, oh well, they broke the NBA because they had too many good players. I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> something. You that's definitely, definitely, yeah, that's something you would never have in, in, in the NHL, at least in, in, in the current parlance, because people are like so afraid to to double down on being good or being like one sided. And so it's like, oh, they have too many shooters. They have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, who are probably like number one and number two all time in terms of shooting, and they added probably number five all time and Kevin Durant. It's like in hockey, they're like, oh, well, they have Ovechkin. Uh, it's like if the Leafs added o- Ovechkin, it's like, well, they already have, like, two great goal scorers. And then, you know, let's say, you know, Drysaddle comes on the market. Like, they can't have, add a third one. Like, <laughs> why not? Like, if the goal is, you know, in the NBA, it's like if you have 100 points, you know, give or take, that's like the average score of a game. So you need to figure out how to score 100 points or not to give up 100 points. And I want to say the NHL is 220 goals. Okay, well, if I want to go – if the benchmark of a Stanley Cup contender is a plus 40 goal differential, it doesn't matter how I get to 200, like how I get there. If I'm scoring 260 goals and giving up 220, or if I'm scoring 220 and giving up 180, it doesn't matter. I just need to be able to do it. And so, like, once again, what is the philosophy of your team and more specifically your lines and not just we're going to compete, we're going to be tougher, we're going to be better at every team at this particular area um you know in the neutral zone being the fastest team on the ice uh you know being uh uh to your point about line construction the data that i've seen the best overall collective skill that a team could have is actually passing the more elite passes you have in a given line or even like an elite just the more good passes you have in a given line it's very similar to spacing in basketball where the more three-point shooters you have just the more uh, things open up for other players, uh, regardless of their talent level. And I think it's the same thing with passing, where it's like, if everybody on your team is capable of making a great pass, then the offense has no idea what, or uh, the defense has no idea what to do, and the goalie is moving constantly left and right, left and right, and that's what opens up seams to allow you to score. That makes a lot of sense, too, because a lot, like, Marner gets criticized a lot as a primarily a passer. Right. Everybody's like, well, they know he's going to pass or whatever. It's like, but if your main thing is passing, there's four people that puck can go to. Right. That's not an easy thing to defend against. Right. The So guys like Martin, Martin's not actually the, that bad at it. Uh, the two guys who I critique a lot, like Jonathan Duran, who uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was super big on, you know, coming out of junior, um, you know, I thought he was going to be an amazing player. Um, uh, and Alexis uh, Lafreniere, um, where, you know, they, uh, they have the passing ability. They can make all the passes. But you can see the difference between guys like like Druin and a guy like, you know, Patrick Kane or Marner or something like that, which is like, I can make a pass, but Druin will stand on the side, uh, on the half wall and just stand there and wait for a pass to open up versus a Marner will create the advantage himself and then, like, make it a larger advantage. You know, he'll see that there's a seam opening up and then drive towards that defender that's covering the pass to bring them away from the from Austin Matthews. And then once that defender slides over to cover Marner going to the net, then he kicks it over to Matthews, and then that's an easy goal. And so there are a lot of guys who have the ability to take advantage of, like, those advantage states but can't create them on their own. 
and there are guys that can create the advantage but can't really you like do anything with it so when you have that combination of both and particularly as a collective team where you know you see it like you know Steph Curry you know pump fakes the guys are running at him so now there's somebody's open on the other side and then they pass it around and then they get a wide open layup it's almost the same thing where it's like oh you know we kick it out you know we get it to you know the face off dot you know the team is already like adjusting and everybody's sliding over to the right side and now you you know hit a backdoor pass and then you know it's a tapping goal like you basically need that collective like strength across the lineup and the more you can do that the better you're going to be overall and that makes sense too i know on twitter people really love goal scoring especially and it like it makes sense goal scoring is really sexy and it's easy to quantify uh, yeah. which is also a very big part of it i think but like any analysis that tries to look at like the value of passing versus shooting always shows that passing is more predictive of future success or whatever, which would signal to me that it's more important. Like all Ryan Stimson's work uh, showed that passing was way, way more more valuable than shooting. And it makes sense too. like, think about how many good power plays are successful just by a good guy standing there. No, it's always the puck movement, opening it up the lanes and whatnot. That's where the true value comes from offensively. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think, Speed, I, I mean, my running philosophy was like, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, if you have like the fastest lineup, you know, you know, on the ice and stuff, and I, you know, different ways of measuring speed and skating and all of that. I was like, oh, yeah, you can just like skate circles around like guys and it's great. But uh, that was not the case. Uh, one of the reasons being is like some of the super fast guys are, you know, uh, my I had in my phone for like years, like an ex-girlfriend as uh, Andres. Uh, and at the, uh, I can't even say that now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, yeah. it's like, you, you know, flies in a straight line, like fast as hell, but then like you just run straight to the wall because he doesn't have shake. Um, another guy, Taylor Hall, who's an amazing player, an amazing skater, but for all of his talent and skill level, like is not, you know, all that dynamic with the puck itself, which is sort of minimizes his impacts. And so I was like, oh, OK, so this makes sense. You kind of do need that hockey sense and being able what makes Connor McDavid great is not just because he's the fastest player on the ice. I've actually made arguments that he's not. What makes him great is his ability to process going at a high speed. You know, so there are guys that, you know, that race car drivers that can, you know, pedal to the metal and go 300 miles in a straight line. But as soon as they have to, you know, make a turn or, you know, go around another driver, you know, they crash immediately versus Connor McDavid can make all those turns, all of that, and then also process where everybody else is you know, and cut through and, and get around someone and pass them as quickly as possible. So as we saw in like a lot of his recent goals, you know, he's just seeing four different guys and he's processing where they should be doing faster than they are able to. And therefore that allows him not only to make plays for himself, but also make plays for others. And obviously that's a once in a lifetime skill. And I think that's probably his most important skill, even more so than the skating itself. But the fact that he's able to do that and a lot of other guys who are very top, top, top of, of the league can as well. Is just super interesting to me. The uh, very minute we're talking about Jonathan Drummond, by the way, he scores a goal. So I don't want to hear any more slander. I think that's enough proof. <laughs> he um, did last, <laughs> last time. I was, last time I was slandering him, he, he scored a goal. I was like, man, he, he, I, I just needed, I just need to talk him up more or talk him down more, and he'd just be the best player in the league. Clearly, yeah. Like literally, the second after I went on Twitter, I saw what a goal by Drew, and I was like, are you kidding? Um, one of the things I wanted to circle back on and, and kind of switch topics here a little bit was, um, you know, you mentioned earlier roster construction and yep. getting to, you know, a certain amount of war should be the primary goal. And, and obviously the way that um, I think is very common for teams to construct their roster now is when, you, especially when you're rebuilding is the common phrase built through the draft. And yep. uh, you had a, a very interesting take this past week about um, picks after the third round, which, um, I, I wanted to get into a little bit and just have yeah. you explain, um, because uh, when you tweeted it out, I was very against it. And the more I kind of look into it, I, I definitely am on your side more than I thought I would. But I think it'd be a, a good one to just kind of dive into and explore what you think of. Uh, I believe it was any pick on the fourth round or later. Oh, I said I said the third round, <laughs> the third round, but uh, specifically pick number 55. Uh, now, I will say one thing, uh, and, and this is probably just me personally. I'm sure no other hockey analysts, people do this. I, I find that, um, unfortunately, more subtle positions are not the ones that people respond to. I, you know, I say a lot of stuff on yeah. all the time, uh, and not with the intention of like, okay, you know, let me throw a pipe bomb and see what the reaction is. Uh, you know, I'm just sort of spewing out thoughts. But the things that are more like absolutely, like, 
there's no way that can be the case. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> uh, I'm having to argue. So, you know, going back to the four forwards example, I'm not saying every team should go to four forwards, but some teams should consider it. And so the same thing when it comes to the draft picks, which is, uh, I think Vegas has been a perfect example um, and one I've cited, which is, are first round picks valuable? Yes. Is the value for the, is the value of those first round picks commensurate to how teams actually value them? Probably not. And I think Vegas has done a great, particularly if they're outside of the top 10, I think Vegas has done a great job of taking advantage of that, of getting like real actual NHL talent that is probably more than expected value of that pick or prospects um, that they're giving up. So, you know, Eric Branstrom for Mark Stone is like, and two second round picks, like that's amazing. Like even if Eric Branstrom turns into like the second coming of, you know, Eric Carlson, like that's still probably a good trade no matter what for Vegas. Um, and then same thing with uh, Jack Eichel, like, you know, Alex Suck, you know, Cody Glass, you know, great players in theory, but they're probably, you know, if Jack Eichel works out, they're probably not going to come anywhere close to replicating that value that they received back in that trade. And so going to the third round pick piece, you know, I always hated, you know, Arizona being a perfect example. I want to say they have three first round picks this year and then five second round picks uh, or something along those lines. So all, you always hear like, oh, such and such team has, you know, uh, seven picks in the first three rounds. And it's one first round pick and then like two second rounders and then like four thirds. I'm like, that's like 2.5, 2.5 actual NHL players and probably one good one. And so like the, that's probably what most teams have in their war chest anyway. So I don't know why we're tweeting about that, but whatever. Um, so when it comes to the third round pick, it's not to say that third round picks are not valuable and that you can't get actual NHL players from them or NHL star, or even an occasional NHL star. But if a team is willing to give up an actual NHL caliber player and one that preferably has some upside beyond what they currently are for it, even if you have to attach another, like basically to me, if someone is offering me, um, I'm trying to think of who's a marginal NHL player, Brandon Hagel for, for the Canadians, uh, for, and I have to give up a third, fourth, it, it, basically all my picks after the third round uh, in the next year's draft. I'm doing that in a heartbeat. Because um, the quantity, like, yes, that's four picks, but like none of them will probably, that collective uh, value would not equal to one Brandon Hagel, let alone you know, a more important player than that. So the point basically was, if you can, particularly for that pick, like people aren't going to trade like good players for just a third round pick in itself. But if you can attach a third round pick plus another player to get like a better player and upgrade, like your actual on ice talent now, then go ahead. Because even if that third round pick is any good, it probably won't be good for another three or four years. And you do have to like discount the value of that like impact player for the fact that they're not going to be contributing to the ice anytime soon. And that makes sense. And I think, you know, obviously where, you know, uh, nuance comes in and <laughs> obviously there is a very lack of that on Twitter all the time, right. uh, which is not shocking. But uh, where the nuance comes in is, is it depends what team it's for, right? Like, because um, to, to me, the thought of if you're the 28th best team, acquiring a player to put you to the 27th best team yeah. probably doesn't do a lot for you in the yeah. long term. Whereas even the zero point zero five percent chance that your seventh round pick turns into a franchise star it's like okay well there you go but if you're again like the tampa bay lightning the toronto maple leafs then it makes way more sense that you want to get those little edges because that could be what puts you over the top for a playoff round two maybe in the cup final uh you know even though it's that small of an edge and so that's what you know i really had to get my head around i think because you know when i read it at first i was like well that doesn't make sense but if you stop and think about it the um especially with how long it takes players to develop, right. even if it's quick, it's a couple of years, right? Like, and some of that, especially I think especially at that in, point in the draft. It, exactly. And some of that might be internal bias where it's like, if you have a seventh round pick and a first round pick who got picked because he was big and they actually have the same skill, the first rounders getting in all the time. But at the same time, regardless of why it is, it, it just, you don't see too many picks rounds four and back making the NHL within the first two, three years of their their deal so that that definitely makes more sense to me you know thinking it out and right the most oh go ahead sorry. sorry the most like the easiest pushback i can think of is like or what i immediately thought of when i saw this was like well we know from draft pick value charts that the real thing is 
quantity over quality yes. because um, it's mostly a crapshoot anyways. But the logical extension of that is undrafted free agents probably aren't that much different than the guys who are being picked in these picks anyways. Yes, and, and that is actually, uh, yeah, thank you for clever. That was the actual point I was making, which was, uh, uh, which was if you can trade those picks for like actual assets, the player the quality of player that you can get on the free agent market like if you're saying like hey i'm drafting it like yes obviously you want to get the brady points of the world but uh like if you get a brady point with a third round pick and you know that you're gonna have brady point there and you can pick them with the 76 pick go ahead and do it or you can pick adam fox like please by all means go ahead and do it but on average in a majority of the time it's not going to be that caliber of a player so if you can trade that third round pick for something that another team perceives as more than it's worth and sign an equivalent player for like the league minimum uh, and basically get the same outcome from that. You not only have like, okay, well, I have that player I was trying to get with the third round pick anyway, plus I also have the value of whatever that third round pick added to, you know, whatever my trade, uh, my trade, you know, value was anyway. And so that's really sort of where it comes into play. Like to me, I would be jealously guarding any pick that could potentially turn into a first round pick. Uh, it's like a top 15 pick, no matter what. Um, teams are starting to do pick protection, um, but the uh, Blackhawks being a perfect example. If you saw the Eric Carlson trade, you should definitely learn that there are some times where you think you're going to be a better team than you are, and sometimes it doesn't work out. So add in, like, at the very least, top 10 protection. Uh, Ottawa did that the same year where they traded for Matt Duchesne. Like, add in top 10 protection, protect the hell out that pick. Then anything after like the you know the top ten like okay sure I can give it up you know for an actual NHL player you'll be more willing to trade it for that second round picks I really don't value all that much uh, even late first round picks I just call fancy second rounders um because the likelihood of that turning into a star is not really high um but then if you can trade anything below like that middle of the the second round for like an actual NHL talent and uh and then get an nhl talent off the waiver wire or something like that then i would definitely go consider doing that uh, for any team that is not the most dire of teams that, that does not have a plethora of, of playing time and is not like 20 points back of you know uh the wild card and you know it's not the ottawa senators basically so yeah and that makes sense too for specifically good teams because we kind of talk about me and Mets talk about this in Explicitly. It's not always quite so explicit, but there's like the really aggressive nonlinearity, assuming your goal is to win a cup, to adding like war to a good lineup as opposed to a, to the Buffalo Sabres, which right. I think most people do intuitively understand that a, adding a one win to the Sabres doesn't mean anything. But you give, say, the Toronto Maple Leafs a functioning third line instead of what they had last year. That's really the only change they've made. And right. now Micah has them as like overwhelming President's Trophy favorites. Right. It's a relatively small upgrade, but small upgrades to good teams are absolutely fucking huge. Right. Yeah. And we talked and we talked to uh, I, I did an article a few years ago on the Vegas uh, extension. And, uh, and I like to point out uh, very wrongly, <laughs> I like to point out that I was one of the few people that thought Vegas had the chance to be good coming out of the draft. I thought the draft sucked. <laughs> I thought they drafted the wrong guys. But uh, so, <laughs> yes. Yeah. We are very much on that boat as well. So, yes, I didn't think that they uh, they picked the right guys, but I didn't think that there was more than enough talent to craft uh, a good team. Obviously, no one could predict it, including Vegas, uh, as you would see from any quote that they had at that point in time <laughs> uh, or any move that they made um, that they were going to be that good. But one of the things I put in there was like, yes, the S curve of talent, which is like for really bad teams, as you said, adding one win, it, you're at the flat end of that S curve. Um, and you're not really doing anything. And then when you get to a certain level, you know, the, you know, the 80, 85 point mark. Well, OK, then you adding extra talent does significantly increase your chances of making the playoffs. And then when you get to we talk about championship equity and getting there. Yeah. It, for most teams, it really doesn't matter. Like 90 percent of teams in the league, it doesn't matter. But then adding a three war player to, you know, Boston or, you know, a Colorado or something like that or even Tampa Bay, like. Every advantage counts, particularly in the postseason. Um, you know, as we talked about, the majority of damage done by first lines is against the weaker, you know, teams, uh, weaker lines. It's not against the first line uh, where, you know, your Tyler Sagan and Jamie Benn are getting beat by, you know, uh, 
McKinnon. It's the fourth line that's doing that. So if you're able to reduce the likelihood that your fourth line is going to get beat uh, on an everyday basis. Oh, okay. I finally saw the drawing go. <laughs> uh, that was nice. <laughs> uh, if you're able to reduce that and, and pull out a third line like Tampa Bay was able to do with Blake Coleman and, and, and Goudreau and Yanni Gord, like that's exactly what you want to be building towards. So going back to all the things we talked about, you know, finding undervalued assets, you know, potentially using guys like, you know, Gord on the, the blue line if you can't fit them into the regular lineup and just having more talent than anybody else. Like, that's what your GM should be doing at every single opportunity. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things, you know, obviously you've mentioned uh, basketball a couple times already here, and uh, I always like kind of comparing, you know, where the NHL is compared to other leagues, and obviously the MLB is absolutely miles ahead statistically than anything in hockey. Uh, you know, I would argue basketball is too, but um, Chase and I really like the NFL and I, I've, I think the NFL is a little farther than what they have, but at the same time, the acceptance of it, I feel like is just starting to come around in the NFL now. Um, and there's a lot of parallels to be drawn. And one of those uh, with what the Vegas Golden Knights are doing right now kind of reminds me of the LA Rams in football where yeah, uh, they're, they're taking a ton of flack because they trade away all their top end picks. And in football, it's a little different because you get compensation picks back for when you lose players via free agency. But you know, the the narrative around the Rams right now is, well, they don't care about the draft. They're all in right now. They're not like, they don't care about any of their picks and it's not really true, but they're doing the same idea where they don't value the first rounders near as much as everyone else, because they know they're going to be the 30 like late twenties, early thirties for that pick. Right. So for them to get a good wide receiver or, you know, a good safety or something like that, defensive player in coverage. Exactly. They value that more than they do whoever they're going to get at the 27th overall pick. And, and it's, it's not the exact comparison, but it's kind of reminding me what like Vegas is trying right now too. Yeah. Although, yeah, my issue with the Rams uh, approach in, um, uh, I, I met some of the analytics people from there. My issue with the Rams approach is uh, I, I do like the aggressiveness, um, particularly like trying to upgrade, you know, the quarterback and trade a few, two first round picks for that um, to do things like that. Like that makes a ton of sense. Uh, the problem is play guys like Jalen Ramsey, as good as Jalen Ramsey is, he's one of my favorite players. Like they gave up a lot to get him. Um, they gave up a lot to get uh, our receiver and Brandon Cooks and all that stuff like that. And so it's like, okay, yes. It is a smart approach when, you know, uh, I forgot who I was referencing. Actually, it might have been Nick Suzuki or whatever. But it's like, it defeats the purpose of finding undervalued assets and you pay them, like, market value. <laughs> like, it, it, the point That's is that, too. you know, it, it, because the way that teams get ahead is by, you know, finding an investment strategy that works and they can get, you know, more of these assets um, than anybody else uh, because people are undervaluing them so they can get them for it cheaper discounts and then get more of them where you're properly valuing them or slightly overvaluing them then that sort of defeats the purpose so that's that's my issue with that um but with that point like for you know a team like vegas i've said teams should be more aggressive with offer sheets particularly if they're a competitor you know a a contender because to your point like if boston is going to be picking in the bottom you know uh you know 22nd or after anyway over the next four years or you expect them to then you should be willing to, you know, offer sheet, you know, you know, Aho or whoever you can, if you can fit it under under the cap, or at the very least, like use that as a way to threaten that team uh, and to giving you that player for less, or you know, not breaking that cap, or giving somebody else up to not do it, similar to how Vegas did in the expansion draft. Um, because the, that's why I was so fascinated with the Ike trade because it was almost like a not necessarily a free offer sheet because obviously it's a couple of years after you know Ike signed his contract. Uh, obviously, there's the health concerns, and then it's the, the big ticket number. But to be able to get a player of that caliber that could potentially come back for one first rounder, um, versus if you would do an offer sheet for a Mitch Marner or something like that, and have to pay ten million anyway to sort of convince Toronto not to match, plus give up four first round picks, like that's basically the same sort of like transaction you're making with much more risk and much less like guaranteed return. Like so, those to me are the approaches that smart teams should be considering more. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Carolina did it out of spite. Um, I don't know if uh, Kakanemi was, like, the right player to do that with. I would have definitely, like, put all my chips in on Elias uh, Patterson instead or, or, you know, you know, last year, like, Matt Barzal or something like that. So I think teams should be much more aggressive with trading the first-round picks, um, but only in the right situation. 
That makes sense, too, with Eichel. Uh, Matt and I had kind of talked about this. Like, I believe NHL teams intuitively understand there's a non-linearity that happens at some point in terms of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that happens when you go from like a 95th to a 100th percentile kind of player or whatever. For whatever reason, NHL teams seem to make that non-linearity the big jump between like perceived <laughs> third pairings slash sure. third liners and then second liners. When in reality, it happens among like the best of the best first liners. So when you can get a Jack Eichel for a trade, like Jack Eichel's not that much more expensive in a trade than Nick fucking Felino was. Right. Yeah. 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 So that makes sense. I I I think. Yeah. So I do have a, uh, one of the one of the transactions I did push back on uh, for Vegas was uh, Petrangelo. Um, I added Kim. And one of the reasons was, you know, they had to get rid of Nate Schmidt, who I said was kind of washed anyway. <laughs> um, and, and then Paul Stasny. And once again, you know, Stasny was like 36 or something like that. So that in itself is not that big of a deal. But the total talent upgrade that they did, you know, they probably sent out to war, got three and a half war back or whatever. And like, OK, you know, that's an upgrade. But I don't know if it was worth the resources that they did to have to do it. Um, and so for that perspective, you know, it's going back to the 20 war thing, like. Hey, if you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl on your team, that's already like you know eleven war right there. Yeah, so, you're halfway there. Yeah, you're halfway there. But then like if your cap space is taken up or whatever, and you have two star players and no one else left to get you above that threshold, then it kind of defeats the purpose. So like that's why I think that sort of like hard and fast number, like twenty or whatever it may be, is really good because it doesn't matter if you're doing a stars and scrubs approach or a you know a really balanced lineup like the uh, Blues team that won. Um, as long as you just sort of get above that threshold, however you construct a team, is sort of really up to you and your preference. But like, can you just get enough talent, regardless if it's concentrated in one or two players or uh, all across the board? Yeah, and you kind of have to just play the hand you're dealt there, right? right? Like, That's generally you know, ideally. Ideally, you could get a Connor McDavid level player, but let's be honest, the only way to get Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, Austin Matthews, just luck into them in the draft. So. You kind of just got to go with whatever was given to you there. Quickly, quickly to go back to uh, a point that you were all making earlier, like that's where I would be like any team that's sort of like Blackhawks, for example, any team that's on the fringes, if you can get like unprotected first round picks, like I would just be going all in for unprotected first round picks. And, and like to the point of, you know, I'm trying to think of a really good player who's probably not going to be a star. Going, uh, Nick Suzuki as an example. Yeah, actually, he's probably a little bit too good. Um, I'm trying to think of a better, better example. Let me look at uh, recent. Anyway, let's say you have a top, you have a top ten pick that's not going to become like a superstar, but it's going to be a really good contributor for the next like, you know, ten years or something like that. So, you know, you have that player. Uh, Evan, yeah, Bouchard as an example. I would really consider trading that person for a first round pick that's hopefully unprotected. So maybe a couple years out. Uh, um. Because from my perspective, to your point, it's very hard to get a Conor McDavid-level player, particularly if your team is not committed to tanking at all costs. So from yeah. that perspective, it's like, all right, well, is this player him, you know, himself going to turn into a superstar? No. Then I'd much rather take a very good player and turn them into a chance of getting a superstar than guaranteeing I get this really good player that can contribute for the next you know, five or ten years but I could probably find that guy on the free agent market and sign them for $3 million anyway. Like, if I have a chance of getting a superstar with this player or pick, like, I'd much rather do that and then uh, flip them. Um, actually, Dylan Larkin is probably a good example. Like, I would probably trade Dylan Larkin for, like, a um, protected first-round pick if I'm Detroit. Because Dylan Larkin is not going to be a superstar that carries the team to, like, prominence. So what you want to do is get more chances of that and consider trading them to a team like Buffalo that's desperate, you know, for a win and replacing, you know, Jack Eichel. So they'll trade you their first-round pick this year and you potentially get Shane Wright instead. And even if that doesn't work, that at least resets your clock and, like, aligns the timeline more with what makes sense for your team for the long term. Something in a similar vein I'd love to see, and I know this will never happen, but, like, every time the Leafs lose in the first round or whatever, the Vegas odds makers will have them as, like, the fourth-best team in the league. And then you'll see athletic quotes from Craig Custins interviewing, like, GMs and stuff who are like, yeah, well, they're really not that good. Like, if I'm Kyle Dubas reading that, I'm getting that guy on the phone and trying to swap first-round picks with them immediately. Yes. Like, yes. short other teams, basically. Yes, it, it, and, and I think that's, like... That's yeah, that's another thing. Like I would if you are on the fringes as a team, 
um, I would consider like, you know, trading for a future first round pick, you know? So uh, if I'm like picking the number 17, for example, I would try to call up every team in the league and say, can you give, can I'll trade you this, you know, 2022, you know, number 17 pick for a unprotected 2024. Uh, and it could be better. It could be worse. Um, I think uh, when I ran some data a couple of years ago, when teams are acquiring their first round pick in a trade, I hate deadline trades uh, for like guys like Nick Foligno for uh, Columbus that's not going anywhere because the upside of that pick is so limited. Um, you know, you know, Tampa Bay or, you know, Toronto is going to be picking 25 or, you know, 25 or worse. And so the upside to that trade is so limited where I would be like, yo, can I get a unprotected, you know, or not even like unprotected, like let's say top 10 protected you know, 2023 pick, you know, maybe worse than what I was going to get, but probably not. Like, fortunately, the first round, like, you do have a floor of it only being so, like, bad. Um, but the upside of it is, like, far better to move up eight or ten spots in a drive. The likelihood of you getting the star is, like, so much more uh, than you just sort of taking that, like, 27 pick and turning it into not Rasmus Sandin. Uh, who's the other guy? Uh, uh, uh yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I was thinking the, the uh, his name's like, it's like SNA. It's like a two part name. I forgot. But yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah, good. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I know who you're talking about. Um, anyone, and I think anyone who, you know, like trying to picture what this looks like actually happening is, uh, you know, the senators kind of stumbled into doing this exact thing a couple of years ago. And yeah. I will definitely still fully defend that it was a complete accident because I think Dorian would have taken the the, the Sharks first round pick yes. right away but the Sharks didn't have their first round pick because they'd already traded for Vander Kane so in that Eric Carlson deal you know it it would have looked a lot worse if they flip Eric Carlson for the pick that is the 20 well what would it they made the conference final that year so 29th overall or whatever right instead the Sharks absolutely fall apart because you know there was old they had some regression. Their goaltending regressed as well. Their goaltending stayed regressing, I guess. Right. Martin Jones was bad. Um, but And then Otto ended up with the third overall pick. And, and, you know, obviously you can definitely point out that that third overall pick hasn't quite worked out as much as you would hope a third overall pick would. But at the same time, like just the opportunity cost of having right. that versus settling for something that is going to be 25th or later is just so high. Yeah, no, uh, I as you all might have seen, or maybe not, hopefully not. Uh, like, I got to say, big back and forth with Sense fans last year because I, I, I assured them. Uh, no, I think someone said, we got Stu Slid, we got, you know, Josh Norris, we got uh, uh, Rudolph Bossers. Uh, uh, we, won, we won that trade, like, running away. I was like, did you? Question mark, question mark. I was, like, semi-trolling, but I was also, like, I don't know if it's that clear cut. And everyone's like, how could you, like, you know, just the third pick alone – is like clear indication and like obviously like yes san jose did not intend to give up <laughs> give up the third the, the third overall pick uh to get uh eric carlson uh but the the two sort of counter arguments i had to that was one everybody was sort of taking into account like well they signed into that horrible contract like if eric carlson walked away from san jose and signed with another team this offseason we probably wouldn't even be having this discussion like we were like well yeah he's like one of the worst contracts in the league now yeah but that that wasn't part of the trade like that's a, separate, sort of, yeah. that's a separate that's a separate consideration from the trade like basically if he doesn't resign with san jose people will look back on that trade much more fondly which is interesting in a whole separate thing but the real point of contention i had with them was for san jose and people forget that last year uh before he signed the extension like eric carlson was like one of the top five players in the league from like a war perspective and i think that's the year they made the conference finals run or whatever yeah like, and they went to game six, and the only reason they didn't – well, not the only reason, but they right. lost half their team, including Carlson and injury. It's like, well, you, you can't account for that. Right. And so from that perspective, like, the whole goal in theory is to, like, win championships or bring you as close to winning a championship as possible. That does not necessarily mean, like, trade every first-round first round pick ever to get, like, you know, some third-parent defenseman and do that. But you trade – the whole point of dra drafting in the first round and getting the number th three overall pick is that player eventually – brings you to a conference final with a chance, you know, a 50-50 chance of getting you to the final. So I was like, my point to uh, Senators fans was, is the return, that, uh, to your point about, you know, Tampa Bay, uh, Toronto adding, like, that additional war to get them over the top, Eric Carlson did that for San Jose, at least before he signed the extension, which is the whole point of making that trade. 
is you is you know Tim Sousa and the rest of that package going to have that same leverage with Ottawa just given the state of the rest of the team like the I, I say uh I, I think the bet I made was when uh I, I think uh Carlson had 16 points in, in that playoff run so when that collective trade by the, the collective trade package has more than 16 points total in the postseason then you all have won the trade but until then like and that and in like the same postseason, you all have won the trade. But until then, like you, you all have to get back to me on that, whether or not it's a guaranteed win for Ottawa. Um, because I think people just don't understand. They're always like looking towards the future. It's like, yeah, but like if you can win now, you should definitely try to do it. Like not every team is going to do it, and it's very difficult in the 32 team league. Like you can go your whole life without seeing your team win, and that's just like even if, like every team won once every year. Like it's still very difficult to actually win the the cup uh, very often. But you still have to go for it as often as you can without, like, blowing your team's chances up as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with the the Carlson one especially, I I think it's just for some reason people also don't want to accept that, like, both teams, even if one team has it better than the other, both teams can be okay with how a trade turned out. Like, like I'm fully fine with the argument that San Jose won the trade, especially in a, a pure value standpoint or whatever. But at the same time, like Ottawa being the 20th best team versus the 28th probably right. doesn't get them that much different of a spot, if anything worse. So it's like, yeah, like Ottawa can be happy with what the return ended out to be. It doesn't mean if you do that trade over again, it's the same success or, you know, this one is even as big of a success as you're making it. That's That doesn't even have to be that bad of a thing. It's just like th- this idea that one team needs to so clearly win and the other team needs to so clearly lose it never makes sense to me because, you know, there is obviously an outcome where both teams can lose or both teams can, you know, benefit for where they are in the, in the standings. And just the, the, the want to declare that trade an absolute win, I, I will never understand. Yeah, man, I, I think just at the end of the day, you know, to your point, uh, yeah, both teams can make out. Uh, even, even if your team does not win the cup, you can still benefit from doing that like obviously you're taking a chance of doing that and increasing your likelihood obviously the problem is when you make a trade give up significant assets but you don't really move the needle um so like for example uh dennis savard you know the uh, lightning giving up a first round pick for him uh even though that they won actually i think it was still a bad trade because like they didn't need to like dennis savard was awful (laughs) awful last year before they traded for him and even worse in tampa bay so they sort of went in spite of him but also just gave up a first round pick unnecessarily to get him. So even though they won the cup, I still think it was a bad trade that they didn't have to make because they probably still would have won anyway. Um, and then vice versa, like the thing I say all the time, it's it's easy to win trades when you're not trying to win games. Like I was like, oh yeah, look at the great job that Arizona did in trading Connor Garland. It's like yeah, like because if it doesn't work out, like no one cares. <laughs> like if the you know first round pick that they got you know from you know Vancouver doesn't become anything, no one's gonna hold them to the fire. Uh, versus if you're a contender and you're trying to get over the top, and it's like, how am I going to keep up with the Tampa Bay's and the Colorados of the world? We don't have enough talent on the ice, you know, and people are not giving away first line centers for nothing. So I have to give up two second round picks and a prospect to get them. Like, yeah, and it might not work out, but, you know, I'm trying to win and this is the only way I can see how to do it. So that, you know, you sort of have to reward that boldness as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chase, do you have anything else? No, I think that all makes sense. Yeah, uh, I think it's probably a great time to wrap it up. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, plug some stuff. Where can people find you and anything you do? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, about to drop some uh, some stuff in the next uh, week or so that I'm working on right now. I'm sort of looking at, uh, as we talked about, line uh, combinations and performance. Um, so uh, probably we'll be on hockey graphs. Uh, uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and then um, you can find my stuff at yellow underscore pinato uh, on Twitter. Uh, so generally don't do that. I would probably suggest not to do that. If you don't, <laughs> don't want to see me incessantly trolling every fan base in the NHL. But uh, if you do have time for that, then uh, that's where to find me. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was one of the best episodes we've ever had, I think. Uh, tons of fun. And we'll definitely have to have you on down the road to explore some more of this stuff. Awesome. Thanks, man. As mentioned, huge thanks to Chris for joining us. Uh, Chase and I both had a ton of fun with that episode. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, if you want to find Chase or I on Twitter, I'm at NHL Sends and Stuff. Chase is CM Hockey 66. 
You can find all my work at lastwordonhockey.com. And uh, I believe Chase actually just posted an article on the NFL. Uh, Patriots related, I believe it was, for um, Bet Action HQ. Or Action Network HQ, sorry, uh, is the place you can find that. So you can go and find on his uh, his account, actionnetwork.com is also the site. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. If there's anyone else you want to hear, you know, we're always open to guests. We've said that a couple times, uh, especially during the season where there's not always a ton to talk about, although there there is more now this week for sure. So uh, we'll talk to you all next week, and thank you, everyone, so much for listening.